0: 2 Samuel 9, verses 1-13. to Please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit of God says to the church, beginning in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Zeba? Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Debar, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, "According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do." So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, what abundant grace we have already received today. We've received every day through the provision that You have made for us in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would be so bold now, Father, to come into Your presence and to ask for yet more grace. That we might hear the Word of God with ears of faith and that we might believe what it reveals to be true about You and about us in relationship to You. And that having believed Your Word, God, we would be strengthened to persevere in that same faith. Father, help us today. Help me now to say things that are faithful to the Bible. Things that are clear and true please help us to believe and hold fast to the truth and remind us, God, that You do indeed hold fast to us from this day until the last. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Promises are powerful things. When kept, a promise can be a blessing. Something that strengthens a relationship and deepens trust and inspires confidence. But when broken, a promise can be painful, something that hurts a relationship and erodes trust and provokes bitterness. I'm I'm sure most of us here this morning know both of those realities from experience. Whether kept or broken, promises can be powerful things. Our passage today is a beautiful picture of the former, the power of a promise kept. As we've seen over the last several chapters, David's kingdom is thriving. He conquered Jerusalem, chapter 5. He brought the Ark of the Covenant into the center of Israel's life, chapter 6. He received God's covenant, chapter 7. And he dispatched all of Israel's enemies, chapter 8. If there is a golden age in David's life, then this is surely it. Things are going remarkably well. And in the midst of that thriving kingdom, David remembers a promise. A promise he made years ago to his dear friend, Jonathan. You may remember the promise as well, back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. It was one of those moments where Saul was trying to kill David, that pretty much describes all of David's life. Saul's trying to kill David, and Jonathan warns David of what's about to happen so that David can escape. And in response, David makes a covenant with Jonathan, his friend. David promised Jonathan that whatever happened in the future, David would always show steadfast love to Jonathan's descendants. Always. He would never take steadfast love away from Jonathan's family. It was this stirring moment of kindness. Remember, Jonathan was Saul's son, the presumed heir to the throne. He should have been David's enemy. And yet, David promised kindness to his friend. Well, now decades later, David remembers that promise and amazingly, David keeps it. That's the basic message of this chapter. The king keeps his promises. You heard it as we read. David seeks out Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who is crippled. And David goes out of his way to show this man kindness. Three times, in fact, David uses that word, kindness, Verse 1, verse 3, and verse 7. That word is the key, friends. You see, what David does in this chapter is about more than meeting an obligation. It's more than merely keeping his word. At the heart of David's decision is this notion of kindness. It's actually one of the most important ideas in all of the Old Testament. It's sometimes translated loving kindness if you grew up reading the King James Version like I did sometimes translated loving kindness, or steadfast love. It's the same word that God uses to describe Himself in Exodus 34 when He says He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's the same word that shows up 120 times in the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of David, steadfast love. It's one of the more important ideas in all of the Old Testament. Kindness. 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 Steadfast love. Here in our chapter, perhaps the best rendering would be covenant love. Covenant love. It's love for another person that's rooted in the loyalty and commitment of covenant. Remember, a covenant is a binding agreement sealed with a promise and guaranteed in that word. This is covenant love. Love that's rooted in loyalty and the commitment of covenant. That's the theme of 2 Samuel 9. And that's what David does here for feeble Mephibosheth. David shows him the kindness of covenant love. And it's this theme of covenant love that speaks to the significance of the chapter for us. As we watch David's kindness to Mephibosheth, we see more than a promise kept. We see a wonderful picture of God's own covenant love for His people. Ultimately, friends, I do pray that is what will encourage you this morning. I know it's surprising to find it here in 2 Samuel 9, but this truly is a beautiful anticipation of the Gospel. Think about it. A mighty King, bound by covenant love, showing kindness to someone who is weak and unable to save himself. It's a beautiful picture, and I pray it will encourage you. As we look now to the details of the chapter, there are three features of David's covenant love for Mephibosheth that deserve our attention. First of all, we need to see the foundation of covenant love. The foundation of covenant love. It should grab your attention that chapter 9 begins rather abruptly. Verse 1 basically comes out of nowhere. Without warning or introduction, we find David asking if there is anyone left of the house of Saul. We're not told why this moment jogged David's memory, but it does. David remembers his covenant to Jonathan, and he asks if there, he asks if there is anyone to whom he can show this promised kindness. Now understand, friends, David's request is unexpected. This is not how kings typically operated in the ancient Near East, when a new king came to power, he would certainly want to find all the descendants of the former king, but he would want to find them so he could kill them. Any living descendant would be a threat. Any living descendant could lead a revolution. So it was expected for new kings to hunt down all the kids of, their former, uh, of the former ruler and eliminate them. But David does the unexpected. He asks about Saul's descendants not so he can eliminate them, but so he can show them kindness. It's unexpected. But along with that, you could also say David's request is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. I mean, think about it, friends. David's covenant with Jonathan was made in private. So it's unlikely that many people even knew about it. David could just conveniently forget what he promised. No one would know. No one would know. What's more, not to be too harsh, but Jonathan is dead. So there's no risk of harming their friendship. Jonathan's long gone. Plus, on top of it all, David is well-established as we just saw in the last chapter. Who's going to challenge him? Saul's house is broken. Who's going to challenge David? You put all that together, and on the surface, David's request is just over the top. It doesn't really add anything to the king. From the outside looking in, it's just simply unnecessary. He doesn't need to do this. But most striking of all, David's request is unearned. Notice the description of Mephibosheth given in verse 3. Mephibosheth is crippled in both of his feet, he's lame. You'll remember back in chapter 4 when Ishbosheth, Saul's son and Mephibosheth's uncle, when Ishbosheth was murdered. Mephibosheth's nurse at that time saved the young boy's life. But in the rush to escape, there was some sort of accident and the boy became crippled. We don't know the specifics, but his condition is clear enough. In fact, every time Mephibosheth shows up in 2 Samuel, his condition is emphasized. He's Mephibosheth the cripple. That's how he's known. That's his identity. He's entirely dependent on the care of others. He's helpless, in other words with no way of laying claim on the king. So whatever kindness David is going to offer, it's not because Mephibosheth earned it. It's not you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. This man's helpless. Unexpected, unnecessary, unearned. Do you hear the emphasis on grace, friends? Grace. We're simply reading along in the story of 2 Samuel and verse 1 graciously interrupts us with this surprising display of covenant love. It comes out of nowhere. Now the question, of course, is why does David do this? That's the question that I'm asking. Why does he do this? It's unexpected, unnecessary, unearned. So what prompts David to graciously initiate this kindness? Well, notice what the king says when Ziba arrives in verse 3. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? So whose kindness does David want to show? The kindness of God. You see, David himself has received this same kindness from the Lord. Do you remember it? Just two chapters ago. When God made His covenant with David, God promised David kindness. It's the same word. God promised David steadfast love. And in making that promise, the Lord did what was unexpected, unnecessary, and unearned. He gave David grace. And now notice the effect the Lord's kindness has in David's life. Having tasted of God's kindness, what does David do? He gives what he first received. He gives what he first received. David shows the Lord's kindness to someone who can do nothing to earn it. Friends, this is the powerful effect of God's covenant love. It compels God's people to give what they have also received from the Lord. David loves Mephibosheth because God first loved him. Brothers and sisters, what I want us to grasp here is just how foundational God's kindness, how foundational God's grace is to the life of God's people. This is so important for us to understand. We often acknowledge the importance of God's grace in our becoming a Christian. We rejoice that it was God who graciously called us out of darkness and made us alive in Christ. But as this passage so beautifully reminds us, the Lord's grace is not exhausted on the day of our conversion. And the power of God's kindness is not limited to His sovereign initiative. No, the effect of God's grace carries on so that we are a different people. God's kindness both saves us and then constrains us, so to speak. Compels us to give what we first received. Friends, this is why we make it our aim to remind ourselves of the Gospel each and every week. This is why you should make it your aim to preach the Gospel to yourself every single day. Because God's covenant love is the foundation, the heartbeat, the everything of the Christian life. Look, I know that David is unique. And his covenant with Jonathan was a particular promise specific to their particular lives. But if you think about it, friends, we too are a people bound in covenant. Are we not? Many of us have made the covenant of marriage. Those of us who are members of this church have covenanted together to walk the Christian life. What's more, all of us who are believers are bound to the Lord Jesus in the bonds of covenant. How can we be faithful to those covenant commitments? Keeping covenant is hard. It's hard to keep your promises. So how can we possibly carry this out? Only by first recognizing the covenant love God has so graciously shown us as His people. As the Apostle John would write centuries later in 1 John 4, we love because God first loved us. It's not a new commandment I'm writing to you, John says. It's a commandment from old. Right here in 2 Samuel 9. We love because God first loved us. So let me encourage you, friends, that time spent reflecting on God's covenant love for His people is never wasted. You can never know the Gospel well enough. And it's never a waste of your time to go a little bit deeper in what God has done for His people. It's actually foundational to do that. It's the foundation. It's the heartbeat. It's the everything. For it is God's covenant love for us that enables and compels us to show that same kind of love to others. That's the first feature we see, the foundation of covenant love. And in God's providence, the second feature of our passage is actually an extension, or we could say a continuation, of the first. I just encouraged all of us to reflect on God's covenant love, and guess what? That's what we're gonna do right now. In verses five through eight, we see a living illustration of God's kindness to the helpless, and it's the provision of covenant love. The provision of covenant love. In terms of the narrative, we're shifting from David's perspective to Mephibosheth's. And and that's important to note. To appreciate this point, we have to put ourselves as much as we can in Mephibosheth's shoes. We've already noted his helpless position, and that remains true here. Mephibosheth can do nothing to earn the king's favor. He is weak and needy. If Mephibosheth is going to gain anything, it will be solely through the kindness of the king. But there's more that you should know about Mephibosheth. He's also apparently afraid. Notice verse 4 that describes where he's living. We can't place this precise location, but we know it's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You remember, the Jordan River is on the eastern side of Israel. So if you cross the Jordan, you're technically outside of the land. right? So Mephibosheth lives on the eastern side of the river, which means it's as far away from Jerusalem as you can get without basically living in another country. He's far, far away. And this is understandable. Humanly speaking, Mephibosheth should be David's enemy. He is a descendant of Saul, remember? And therefore, it would only be natural to expect hostility between the two men. So when the messengers from David show up in verse 5, and they knock on Mephibosheth's door, and he opens the door, you can imagine what's going through his mind. Right? I mean, this is it. It's like the witness protection program falling down around him. This is it. They found me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be executed. It's all over. In fact, I take verse 6 as hinting at Mephibosheth's fear. Notice how he falls down before David when he arrives. It would have been an awkward fall. He's he's crippled. Of course, he's being respectful, but it's respect mingled with fear. He's afraid. So by the end of verse 6, Notice the situation that we have. Try to picture it in your mind. On one side is the mighty, well-established King David seated on his throne. And on the other side is the helpless Mephibosheth stumbling in awkwardly, falling down before the king. Two men who should be enemies. You can understand why Mephibosheth would be afraid. But that's where the story takes an incredible turn. Mephibosheth's fear proves unfounded. And beginning in verse 7, we see a striking provision of covenant love. You'll notice David gives Mephibosheth three provisions here. This is the heart of the passage, friends. Even structurally, verse 7 is where the passage turns. Verse 7 is the heart, it's the key. And it deserves our careful attention. So, so look, at me, look with me at what the king provides to the helpless. Three, three provisions. First of all, the king provides strong comfort. After greeting Mephibosheth by name, notice David's first words in verse 7. Do not be afraid. Think of how sweet those words would have sounded to Mephibosheth. He's face down on the ground, remember? He's face down on the ground, trembling at the thought of what David will do to him. And the first thing the king says is, do not be afraid. David doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell Mephibosheth, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. So the world says there should be hostility between these two men, but covenant love proclaims there will be kindness, grace, mercy. And understand, friends, this comfort comes entirely at the king's initiative. He called Mephibosheth, he summoned him, and now he takes the first step and speaking a word of comfort to the helpless. It's all of grace. And it speaks a word of strong comfort to Mephibosheth. Verse 7 keeps going, and the king also provides a renewed inheritance. Strong comfort and a renewed inheritance. You'll remember that every Israelite received a stake in the promised land as part of their inheritance with God's people. Well, it seems that Saul's stake, Saul's lands were somehow lost. We don't know the details, but the key point is that David restores them. Look at the middle of verse 7. I will restore to you all the land of your father Saul. Most commentators think Saul's lands probably reverted to the king, which is why David has the authority to restore them. In some sense, David controls this land. He owns it somehow. So notice what David is doing then here. He's taking from his own riches in order to provide for the helpless. The land belongs to him. And he's taking from his own riches to give to Mephibosheth. David could have kept the land for himself and nobody would have said anything. But covenant love propels him to provide. And he does so by restoring Mephibosheth's inheritance. Comfort, inheritance. David's provision has been overwhelming already. But the end of verse 7 takes it to another level. Here the king provides a new status, a new status. Notice what the text says, end of verse 7 and you shall eat at my table always. Friends, it's difficult to overstate how stunning this is. Remember, Mephibosheth should be David's enemy, but David has agreed to show him kindness. And yet, Setting aside that kindness, being welcomed at the royal table is excessive. It's extravagant, it's excessive, it's over the top. The royal table was usually reserved for the king's sons. To sit at the table with the king was, in some sense, to share in the king's glory. It was to participate in his royal status. It's not something you could attain on your own, and it's not a position that anyone outside of the royal family had a right to pursue. You just didn't go there. And yet, what does the king do here? He freely and graciously gives that status to the helpless Mephibosheth. In fact, four times The passage emphasizes this new status. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 13. Do you see how the Bible is urging us not to overlook this? But instead to grasp the weight of the moment by grace and nothing but grace. Mephibosheth is treated like the king's son. In fact, look at verse 11. Verse 11 declares this grace so clearly. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Can you even imagine it, friends? Here is a man who should have been the king's enemy, but he is welcomed as a son. Here is a man who is helpless on his own, so the king soups down from his throne to raise this man up to a place he could never attain by himself. There's no human reason for Mephibosheth to be at this table. There's just no human reason. And yet here he is, feasting with the king. I mean, what grace, what kindness, what unspeakable covenant love. Strong comfort that casts out fear, renewed inheritance that provides security, and a new status that boasts only in grace. This is the provision of covenant love, friends, and it is staggering. But what's even more amazing is that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have received this same covenant love, but to a much greater degree. I mean, did you hear the Gospel echoes as we worked through these verses? I mean, we're in 2 Samuel 9, but the words of Romans 5 are practically ringing out from this passage. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Mephibosheth's testimony is our testimony, brothers and sisters. We were weak and helpless on our own with no hope of raising ourselves up to be reconciled to God. What's more, we were God's enemies living in rebellion against Him and defying Him in our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, sought us us out and showed us covenant love. In eternity past, God the Father made a covenant of redemption with God the Son. And in the fullness of time, the Father sent forth His Son to fulfill that covenant. And the Lord Jesus was faithful to do just that. There on Calvary's hill, the Son of God displayed once and for all the unspeakable covenant love of the Father. The Lord Jesus shed His blood to purchase a people. And now through that Gospel, God has given His people an incredible provision. You see, what David gave to Mephibosheth points us ahead to what believers have received from the Lord Jesus Christ and from His Father. Think about it. The Gospel speaks a word of strong comfort to the Christian. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 King Jesus Himself declares to us, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke twelve. And therefore, as believers, we know the truth of 1 John 4.18, that perfect love casts out what? Fear. Not because our love is perfect, but because the Father's covenant love speaks a word of strong comfort to all who believe. It's the same provision. In the Gospel, the Father also gives us a renewed inheritance in Christ. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians 1. And this inheritance can never be taken away. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1. In fact, the Father Himself has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 1. All of this brothers and sisters, is provided for you in the Gospel, provided to those who believe. And most amazing of all, in the Gospel, the Father gives us a new status, a new identity as His own sons and daughters. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1. And since we are sons, we are also co-heirs with King Jesus Himself. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4. What's more, when you doubt that status as God's child, which you will, which I do, which you will and will do, when you doubt it, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8. Comfort, inheritance, status, Mephibosheth's testimony is our testimony, brothers and sisters. And perhaps part of the reason the Holy Spirit inspired and recorded this passage is to renew our sense of wonder at the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you friends, but sometimes I take the Gospel for granted. I know that might sound weird to hear a pastor say, but pastors are just normal people. Sometimes I take the Gospel for granted. Many days, the good news sounds like old news to me. And maybe you can relate. And if so, then perhaps Mephibosheth, feeble, weak, crippled Mephibosheth, can be of help to you today. Perhaps this crippled man who should have been an enemy and an outcast can renew your sense of wonder. He's eating at the table. There's no reason for him to be there. David could have killed him and no one would have said a thing against it. There's no reason for him to be there. And there he is. Perhaps Mephibosheth, of all people in the Bible, perhaps Mephibosheth, can give you a deeper understanding of the provision of God's covenant love for His people. Comfort, inheritance, status. If you belong to Christ by faith, then that provision is yours. And every last bit of it owes entirely to grace. And if it owes entirely to grace, then it cannot be taken away. Well, if we stopped right here, I would be encouraged. I hope you would be encouraged. But as we've just seen, the Lord is excessive in His kindness, and He has a bit more for us to see from this chapter. One last feature of covenant love. Verses 9 to 13, and it's the depth of covenant love. The foundation, the provision, and now the depth of covenant love. Beginning in verse 9, David has a conversation with Ziba, who was Saul's servant. Now, later in the story, Ziba's going to cause some significant trouble, but we'll just put that on hold for now. For now, Ziba's willing to help carry out the king's commands. David informs Ziba that he has restored Saul's lands to Mephibosheth, and then David commands Ziba to work the land for him. Ziba has 15 sons and 20 servants, so there's not a problem of help. It's not a problem of workforce. There are more than enough hands to keep the land. And that's what David commands Ziba to do. He's to work Mephibosheth's land for him and thus provide a stable income for his master. Stable income. And that's the key point from these final verses. David's kindness to Mephibosheth goes beyond meager, bare provision. He doesn't just keep him alive, he doesn't just keep him alive. He gives him bountiful provision. Not only does David give Mephibosheth the land, but he then provides a workforce that will make the land fruitful for him. Think of how considerate, how thoughtful this is on David's part. Mephibosheth is crippled. He can't work the land. What's more, Mephibosheth would have a hard time earning enough money to hire the necessary workforce. You see, without a workforce, the land is not a blessing to Mephibosheth, it's a burden So what does the king do? He provides what Mephibosheth cannot. He gives the man a workforce that that matches the depth of Mephibosheth's need. It's not meager provision, but abundant. It's not bare, but bountiful. Again, we hear the echoes of God's own covenant love for His people in the Gospel. The Lord's provision is not limited to a single moment of need. God's kindness has a depth to it depth. In love, God not only welcomes us to His family, which is amazing enough, but God then ensures our ongoing provision as well. He's given us His Spirit who works in the soil of our hearts that we might bear fruit to the glory of God. He gives us His Word, which provides the wisdom that we often lack. It's not meager, but abundant. It's not bare, but bountiful. What deep provision From God, friends. God doesn't do meager. You know that? God doesn't do bare. He doesn't just get us by. His provision overflows and is ongoing. You see, the old hymn is absolutely right. The love of Jesus is deep, vast, unmeasured, and boundless. Our need is great, but the depth of God's covenant love is greater still. And so we come to the end of this surprising but encouraging passage. 2 Samuel 9 is such a beautiful picture of God's covenant love for the helpless. Even as the chapter closes, that theme continues to be on display. Look at the last verse, verse 13. And notice how kindness strikes the final note in the chapter. Verse 13, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Mephibosheth the helpless feasts like a son of the king. Mephibosheth the would-be enemy is welcomed by grace. What an appropriate and moving conclusion. The passage ends with the king and the cripple seated together at the same table. Friends, you'll notice that we have before us this morning a table. But not just any table. This is the King's table, prepared by His grace and declaring His provision. And like Mephibosheth, we gather around this table today, not because we deserve a place here, but because King Jesus is gracious. We are welcomed at this table because Jesus' body was broken, and His blood was spilled for those who were His enemies, sinners like you and me, we don't deserve a seat here, but we've been welcomed here by grace through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray, friends, that as we hold the elements in our hands today and as we partake of them together, I pray that we would rejoice in the covenant love of God that would take helpless rebels like you and me and make us the sons and daughters of God. Mephibosheth's testimony is our testimony. And what a testimony it is. Amen. Let's pray.